Hey, good morning, Bentonville Church. Today we're in Genesis chapter 22, and before we dive in and get started, I just want to mention that this is a difficult reading. It's one of the most horrific stories in all of Scripture, and many people have spent many years of their lives struggling with what to do with this chapter. In fact, the takeaway of today's sermon is going to be that we should be cautious in how we handle difficult passages like this and look at it from different angles so that we have an opportunity for the scripture, the text itself, and the Spirit of God to work on our hearts and to prepare us for difficult seasons in life. This is meant to be today a message that helps us to remain humble as we consider the world that we're in and the text of Scripture and how they relate. So before I begin, I want to make this one comment. Not every Scripture passage is equally uh, useful or good to have all levels and ages of people in the room. And because of the nature of this text, you might want to make your own decision about whether or not to have the whole family sit together for this message. Uh, we're providing, of course, uh, classes that are for the kids, and if they're of an age and you're of a comfort level for everyone to sit through this together, that's okay. But because of the topic and the content, I want to give you your choice. So take a moment and decide what you'd like to do with that, and we're going to begin with this story of the binding of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. So today I want to take a look at this text that was read for us a few minutes ago from four different perspectives. And I'll keep each of them brief so that this message doesn't get overly long and too dense and heavy, but I want to offer four perspectives to help us remain humble and to help us learn to be listeners as we read our Bibles together. So this story famously is the pinnacle moment at the end of Abraham's life, this final test that he goes through uh, right before the decline in his story. This is, the, uh, this is the crest, this is the crescendo, this is the climax of Abraham and God together and their journey of trusting each other for God to choose a person who's trustworthy from which to launch his people and for Abraham to determine whether this God is trustworthy out of all of the so-called gods that are territorial gods, many of which demand, according to their prophets or their teachers, horrific sacrifices of children and other kinds of uh, just terrible acts. So this is a story of trust and of faithfulness that goes in many directions. Let's look at it through four lenses this morning. The four lenses will be as follows. The first one is reenactment. We're going to talk about the story here in Genesis 22 as, as a reenactment of the Bible's story to this point, including Abraham's story and the larger story of Scripture. After we take a couple of minutes to talk about reenactment, we will talk about pre-enactment, where Abraham and Isaac and God in this story are showing us some things about what is yet to come in salvation history or in the story of the Bible, of course, pointing at Jesus. And we're going to talk about this story as event. So this is the third lens, event. Some of the moments in this story get overlooked frequently. And we want to talk about the actual experience of Abraham and Isaac 
in this event. And then finally, at the end, uh, and this really won't take that long, we'll, we will talk about reflection on this story. So how do Christians then now reflect, and in, in some ways how do Jews even reflect on this story, and what did it do for them, and what does it mean for us? So let's, let's start with a reenactment. Abraham gets this ridiculous, absurd command from God to go and sacrifice his only son that he loves, Isaac. And what is God doing here? Well, several things jump off of the page at us when we look through this lens of reenactment. The first in Abraham's own life is that in Genesis chapter 12, God told him to go to a land that he would show him where he would increase his family and bless him to be a blessing for the whole world. That all sounds so very good. Except for that time after time, Abraham has a faltering faith. He follows God boldly at moments, but at other times he seems to take things into his own hands, like all of us do. And so Abraham, in the one hand, follows God and yet struggles to keep his own nephew on the path. Abraham follows God and yet more than once lies about the nature of his relationship with Sarai, his wife, and calls her his sister in order to protect himself. So he's not fully trusting God to protect himself. Then he has a son out of wedlock. It's Sarah's idea, but Abraham participates and drives it. Ishmael is his firstborn son. And then when jealousy comes into the home, they drive the boy and his mother, the Egyptian slave Hagar, away. And it seems like a cruel story. Now that story took place right before this story in Genesis chapter 21. And so one thing that we see when we look at this story as reenactment is that God comes to Abraham a final time and says, now go, but this time I'm going to ask you for an ultimate sacrifice. And as horrific as it is, and it is, we should not deny that this request falls outside of the character of God and we hope of Abraham which will actually be one of the points at the end of the story is that this God is not like those gods. Abraham is being faced with a reenactment of his own personal history. You have followed me as it benefited you and in sometimes difficult ways, but you've also taken things into your own hands and think about the way that you treated Ishmael, the way that you drove him away because it benefited your own home, because it brought peace into your own home. Now, what if I ask you to make an ultimate sacrifice of Isaac, the son whom you love, the one in whom you delight? You would give up a son for yourself, for your own purposes. Would you give up a son for the inscrutable purposes of God, the unsearchable purposes of God? When we read it as reenactment, boy, some new things come to life. And there's another reenactment that's taking place in these pages as well, and that's the story of all scripture that in the garden where God gave a simple command of this one tree you shall not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the serpent comes to Eve and deceives her and she sees that the tree is pleasing to the eye and good for food and she takes and she eats. In this story, Abraham and Isaac are asked to go up onto a place of worship, a sacred place, not in our minds, much different than the Garden of Eden, a place that is uh, rural, that is natural, 
that is probably elevated above the places around it, that is probably lush, a place where the sun carries up wood on his back so that here in this holy place we have a tree. But this time the tree isn't living, it's cut and it's dead. And instead of fruit on the tree is the fruit of Abraham's loins, his son, his seed of promise. And Abraham, in this critical moment in the story, has to look at Isaac and see him and see that he is good and reach out his hand and take the boy off of the altar or take the knife in his hand. It is in many ways, and there's even more than that to it in the story. I've given you just some highlights. It is in many ways a reenactment of the original disobedience. Will people trust God or will they take matters into their own hands? And although this story should never happen again. This is not a call for Christians to behave this way or for anyone to treat their children this way. This is a really a horrible story. It is embedded in the larger story of Scripture in such a way that it is not just about God asking Abraham to do something completely out of the blue. It is deeply embedded in the story of Scripture and of human choice and of faith and faithfulness. Let's talk for a moment about pre-enactment, about how this story foreshadows or is a type of what's to come. Again, Isaac is carrying the wood for the fire on his back up the mountain. After this three-day journey, Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees the place. It's an agonizing moment in the story when he finally has within view the place where this sacrifice is supposed to take place. And he leaves the servants behind with the donkey. He says something pretty interesting. Stay here, the boy and I will go over there, we'll worship, and then we'll come back to you. Later, reflecting on this, the Hebrews author will have something to say about that. We'll get to that in the final viewpoint reflection. But for right now, we might wonder if all we had is this story is what is Abraham doing? Is he lying? Is he hoping beyond hope? Is this great faith? Is this delusion? What is going on here? He doesn't want to tip anybody off. And he puts the, the wood on Isaac's back, and Isaac carries his tree, so to speak, to the place of his execution. This is a pre-enactment, a foreshadowing of the son 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 of Abraham down through the generations who will carry on his back the tree, his own execution device, to the place, to the hill, to the place that they see from a distance, this place of the skull, Golgotha. In so many ways, this is... Uh, a story that is telling about the depth of the costs of redemption and what is to come. So that when we get to Romans chapter 8 and Paul reflecting on the fact that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus will say that God did not spare his own son as Abraham was allowed to spare his own son. Now, there's, again, problems with even saying God did not spare his own son because some people have misunderstood it to think of the crucifixion as this cosmic child abuse, as God delighting and hurting Jesus to 
somehow be satisfied for the sins of the world. There is no delight in what happens at the cross. If anything, the horror of this story itself in its event ought to teach us that the cross is a place of deep darkness, not to be taken lightly. God does not lift the knife as Father over His Son Jesus at the cross. The Father wills it and plans it ahead of time. The Son participates and willingly goes to the cross, and yet it is all of the world, the Jews who condemn Him, the Gentiles who execute Him, together all of humanity represented at that hill with that tree to put to death the Son of God. So this story is important for pre-enactment to tell us what's coming. But there's the event itself, so often overlooked and maybe cheapened by only taking one view or the other and so explaining this whole thing away. The story itself, the event for Abraham is horrific. And for Isaac too, we would think. Let's skim through it one more time quickly. God tests Abraham, but Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He calls out Abraham. And now, in a story in, in which Jewish stories are often told in a fast-paced way, they, they leave out lots of details to, to keep the story moving, there is a pause. And there'll be three of these pauses in the story. God, instead of giving his directions right out, he, he calls out Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. This is the first pause that drags the story down slower a little bit. Here I am. And then he says, take your son, your only, only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. What a horrific command. Abraham must have thought about this throughout the night. He gets up early in the morning. We don't know if he got up early because he was eager to get about doing God's will or if it was because he couldn't sleep, couldn't bear to, to lay one moment and rest while thinking about what this meant. It just says he rose early in the morning. Now look at what Abraham does. He saddles the donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He prepares to go on the journey, and then he delays a little bit. He goes and he cuts all the wood. This is a strange part of the story, that Abraham goes from getting up early and getting ready to go to cutting all this wood on his own. He had servants he could have instructed to do it. Is Abraham waffling? Is he waiting? Is he thinking? Is he buying time? Is he hoping? Maybe all of these things and more. Uh, he, he, he sets out for the place in the distance that God had shown him, and it says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place. Now, the journey could conceivably take three days from Beersheba to Moriah, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So, again, the question comes to mind for readers ancient and modern, is Abraham taking his good old time? Oh, let's camp here for the night, fellows. We've gone far enough for the day. They, they probably could have been there in just over a day's traveling. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place far away. Now, this is interesting because he, he sees this place and he must be considering what is going to happen there. The place is called Moriah and it, is, uh, it sounds like it's a homophone in a way for the Hebrew word to see. So there's a play of words going on here. Moriah and the word to see sound somewhat alike in Hebrew. So he sees the place and then Abraham says to his young men, stay here, the boy and I will go and we'll come back to you. Again, the question is, what does he mean by this? Is this faith? Is this deflecting? Is this 
buying time. Abraham took the wood and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And then there's this beautiful interlude. So the two of them walked on together. This little parenthetical. So the two of them walked on together. Again, it slows down the forward motion of the story and might cause us to ask, what did they talk about? Or was it silent? Does Isaac know? What do they think about as they're walking along? Are they dreading this? Are they eager? What is going on? A question from Isaac. Father. And again, Abraham says, here I am, my son. This is the second time the text gets interrupted with, Abraham, here I am. Father, here I am. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. We get the same parenthetical. God will provide. Literally, in the Hebrew, God will see to it. We've got Moriah that sounds like the word to see, and Abraham seeing the place, and now God will provide. He will see to it. Isaac remains silent in the text must be thinking about what this means. Again, wondering, fearful, hopeful, willing, we don't know. When they came to the place God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. Oh, it's getting real now. And again, the story seems to slow and describe the building of the altar in a way that is almost dreading arriving at the event itself. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He bound him. It's interesting. The Hebrew word akedah is the name of the story, the binding of Isaac in Jewish culture because of this unique word that only here appears in the Torah. He bound him. In the world of the Jews, they never bind sacrifices. There's no such thing as the lambs being trussed up before they're thrown on the altar. In fact, they're slaughtered before they get to the altar. This is the only binding of a sacrifice in the Torah. So what is going on here? How do you bind a young, strong teenage boy? He must have been willing in some way. We get a picture of Isaac who is participating here. Abraham could have potentially stabbed him in the back, cut his throat while he wasn't looking. Again, it's a horrific story with horrific thoughts in mind. But he ties him up. He binds him. There is some kind of participation here, and he lays him on the wood. In other words, he's as good as dead, defenseless. And then is the key moment when Abraham reaches out his hand. And what will he do? untie the boy or take the knife, and he takes the knife. And it's at this moment that from heaven the angel of God cries out, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel of the Lord, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Of course this God is not like the others. He would not actually allow Abraham to go through with this. And yet, 
Isaac was as good as dead, bound, tied, helpless. Now I know, God says, that you fear God. You've not withheld from me your son. In the event, what happens to the relationship of Abraham and Isaac? We don't know. How do they feel about each other on the walk back down the mountain? We don't know. Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. He went and he took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And and it said, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And again, the word provided is this Hebrew word to see, and it means the Lord sees. On the mountain of the Lord it will be seen, or he will be seen. In other words, here there will be an encounter, and God will see to it. In the midst of, of one of the darkest stories in Scripture, the testimony, the light that shines out of the event is God will see to it. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he confirms the promises of God to him. By myself I've sworn, said the Lord. The only time in the Torah that this is a promise of God, an oath is made by myself in this way. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will truly bless you and truly make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. It's a doubling down, a furthering of the promises given before. I'll make your offspring as the sand on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies and your offspring and all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And the story ends with so many questions unanswered. But this is the event with all of its problems and all of its gaps and all of its questions. It's not smooth. It's not sanitized. It's not homogenized for us. It is It's not pasteurized for us. This story is not clean and easy. It is a hard event, a horrific event. And so this brings us to the fourth lens, the last one, which is reflection. I've already pointed out that Paul in Romans 8 will say, God did not spare his own son. He found a faithful man, but God himself is the one who takes care of the plight of humanity. Hebrews, reflecting on this story, will say that Abraham believed hope against hope. That's Paul's words from Romans 5, but it's the same idea in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter about faith. This is that Abraham believed that God could even raise the dead. How could he think that? How could he know that? We just don't know. It's incredible. And this isn't a story to be emulated. This isn't a story that you preach or you teach and you say, go and do likewise. No. Anyone who's hearing voices that says they should do violence like this to another person should not go and do likewise. This is a one-time event, a unique moment in the story of Scripture that is tying backwards and forwards to God's plan of redemption and defining a trustworthy person to make a trustworthy nation to have the son of promise, the one trustworthy one in whom there is no condemnation, Jesus, the King of Kings. This story is about getting to him. It's not about anything you or I could do. And yet it might cause us to reflect on the story of Scripture, reenactment, pre-enactment, event, 
and as meditative literature to cause us to reflect in great times of stress, of trial, and of crisis, because this is what the story became to the Jews after the temple was destroyed in AD 70. It's interesting that in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, this story isn't mentioned again. They just don't talk about it for being such a monumental moment. The final conversation between Abraham and God, the final blessing statement between God and Abraham, right here, this is the climax of his story. And the rest of the scriptures don't really reflect on it until the Christian scriptures do. But after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the Jews wrote about this a lot, the binding of Isaac. And they considered what did this mean when all hope is lost and there's no view of a future and you can't see where it would go from here because that's the situation they were in. And I know for a fact that some of you sitting there this morning listening, 105 days into digital exile, lonely, confused, hurting for our country, hurting for the people in our country, hurting for the people that do the jobs that keep us safe and healthy in our country, hurting for the people that enforce the laws in our country, hurting for the people that have been kept on the outside and kept at bay because of the color of their skin in our country, hurting because of the things you see posted on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, because of the cheap shots and hot takes that other people make whenever they have a chance to just burn it all down on social media. In these moments when we're wondering, what does the future hold? I know that some of you are looking into it and it seems bleak and dark and horrific. And this is a story that the Jews turn to and the Christians turn to, to say, what do you do with horror? What do you do with horror? What kind of people is God looking for? And what kind of God is he? And to our joy and our hope, he is a God who is not like the other so-called gods, who asks us to sacrifice our neighbors and our fellow citizens and our co-workers on the altar of self-preservation. He is a God who provides. On the mountain of the Lord, he will be seen, it will be seen, it will be provided. Thank God for his provision. Let's have humility as we read the scriptures together. Let's remember that many of these stories are not PG-13. They're R-rated stories because life is often an R-rated life. But in it, we see a God who shines bright. We see a hope that is secure. If we praise a Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who ties all of these stories from garden to the city that's descending together. Thank God for Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, holy, mighty, and true, your ways are unsearchable and unknowable, and yet we have moments in our life when when we see that there is no way forward but you. And we thank you, God, that we aren't called into the same kind of 
horrific choice that Abraham was in this one-off event, and yet you call us to choose to trust you, to trust you, to follow you, to lay our lives and purposes down, and to follow the one, trustworthy one, Jesus. Help us to do so, to make him Lord of our hearts and Lord of our lives. We love you, Lord God. We thank you for being different than the other gods that Abraham had the opportunity to follow. And we thank you for being different and better and above all of the powers and all of the politics and all of the life pursuits that we are often tempted to follow. The altars on which we often might be tempted to sacrifice others and to step over them for our own sake. God, you are greater and you shine brighter and we pray that we will worship you in spirit and truth. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.